Hello, and welcome to The Intersection. My name is Mark Riley, and I want to start out by thanking you profusely for listening to this episode of my podcast. Climate change, to put it bluntly, it is a tough issue to tackle. That's because its effects aren't apparent to us under most normal circumstances. Now, there are certain parts of the world where it is apparent to people, but to people in the States, maybe not so much. And the other part of the problem is that people, while they're alive, say, well, all these things are gonna happen, but I won't be here. So it's okay, let me just jump in my gas-guzzling SUV and go on to the gym or whatever it is you're getting ready to do. That's why President Biden's recent climate summit was of critical importance. First, it reaffirmed America's mantle of leadership in fighting climate change. It also, for a fleeting moment, brought together American adversaries like China and Russia in this two-day virtual summit. Both countries pledged to take action to lessen their dependence on fossil fuels. That's significant since China is the world's number one polluter. Yet Biden had some selling to do after his predecessor pulled the U.S. out of the Paris Climate Accord. It looks like in taking the lead and calling the summit and then laying down some markers in terms of America's commitment to change, Biden hit a home run. Well, almost. Republicans, first of all, who largely applauded Trump's denialist rhetoric, are still trotting out their usual tropes. They refuse to believe that fossil fuels have a sell-by date. Biden, on the other hand, has linked fighting climate change to the nation's economic vision. That means rerouting the economy to be powered by wind, solar, nuclear, and other forms of renewable energy. His pledge to make America's energy 100% carbon-free by 2035 and to cut emissions relative to 2005 by 2030 by 50 to 52 percent is something different, something new for this country. It's the strongest pledge this country has yet made. That he's put it in the context of the economy is also smart politics, because what a lot of people, and not just climate deniers, but people who do not want to see America weaned off fossil fuels quite yet, what they say is, well, there's going to be so many jobs lost, it's going to be so difficult for people to retrain, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And what Joe Biden essentially said was, no, we're going to make climate change part of our economic vision. That's important. Of course, aside from being smart politics, his next obstacle is to sell both the Congress and the public. See, because the public doesn't really pay that much attention, I believe. I think people pay attention to climate change either when there's a drought or some other natural disaster or when people like Greta Thunberg jump up and take leadership, not just American leadership, but world leadership to task for not doing enough. Increasingly, it's young people like Greta Thunberg who are leading the way. And I mean leading the way. And keep in mind that climate activists also played a large role in getting governments to move to where they are now, to make even vague commitments to fighting climate change. But these young people, they're not content to hear pledges of action as they see 
ultimately as upholding the status quo. They have a serious set of demands and they're not just part of the U.S. And they're not just of the U.S. China, for example, speaks of a nebulous reduction in coal-fired emissions. The Russians say the same because it slows scrutiny of methane gas, which is something they make a good deal of money from. The young people leading the climate crisis response don't want to hear it. They're taking no shorts from anyone. Keep in mind, they're largely the reason the fight against climate change has gotten as far as it has. In America, a real fight against climate change would mean serious changes in the way we live. I'm going to say that again because I think a lot of times people just think, well, you know, maybe I won't use plastic bags or whatever. Believe me when I tell you, a real fight against climate change, the kind of fight that young people are talking about, would mean serious changes in the way we live. Most of our cars would have to be hybrids or all electric. Our grids would have to be drastically altered, or in the case of many across the country, completely upgraded. Yet, climate activists might well argue that we've known for a while what needs to be done. Yes, there will be climate deniers who will argue that those who fight climate change want to eliminate air travel and all that. What's different now is the fact that more and more young people are speaking out. The young lady who addressed the summit, her name is Zike Bastida, 19 years old. She brought a much needed analysis of exactly who climate change hurts. In specific, she cited nations of the global south and people of color in the global north. People of color generally. While it's true that some nations of color are also among the greatest polluters, sooner or later, climate activism will be at their doorstep. And sometime in the future, we'll see people of all nations using the Earth's resources very, very differently. And that will be a good thing. When we come back, are cops across America training right-wing groups like the Oath Keepers? Or is this just a bunch of hot air? And later, we'll talk to retired police officer Clayton Moore, author of the book, Good Cop, Black Cop, about the Chauvin verdict and much, much more. This is The Intersection. Wherever you are, stay tuned to The Intersection with Mark Riley. Welcome back to The Intersection. Join the conversation on my Facebook page at Mark Riley Media. Justice was served in the Derek Chauvin murder trial, but that certainly does not mean the battle to end police brutality is finished. Six people were shot and killed by police in the days following the Chauvin verdict. It simply indicates there's much, much work to be done, even though most cops are decent people who just want to get home to their families after working a shift. But what about the cops who bring their racist ideology either to their job or in service of white supremacist groups? A recent interview on 60 Minutes might give one pause. Ever hear of the Oath Keepers? They're a far-right militia organization that has among its members a large number of ex-cops and ex-military people. They believe, among other things, that the federal government 
has been co-opted by a conspiracy to take away the rights of American citizens. Here's the catch. As frightening as the Oath Keepers may be on their face, showing up armed at peaceful protests and all, now one of their leaders says their members are being trained by not former cops, but active duty police officers. That's right, active duty cops. Not only that, several Oath Keepers have been identified as being among those who stormed the U.S. Capitol on January 6th. Now, you might think that the Oath Keepers are blowing smoke when they brag about active cops' involvement with their organization. I mean, after all, who runs around broadcasting that on 60 Minutes? People who may have an outsized ego or something? Maybe they spoke openly about their activities because they're just that stupid. Either way, the Oath Keepers, to me, are not the real issue. The police officers that make common cause with them should be the real issue. In an environment where the motives of some in law enforcement, not all but some, are being questioned relative to their racism, how are we to process the possibility of police in our community training people for civil war? And do we think such affiliations have nothing to do with police brutality? <laughs> yeah, right. Keep in mind, many people in law enforcement see groups like Black Lives Matter as the enemy anyway. Shoving case aside, this is the real challenge for both activists and police departments all over this country. This gets to the root of several factors. Who gets hired as police officers? Are there psychological tests that can weed out police with supremacist or racist views? After all, taxpayers arm these cops and mandate that they serve us. There have been far too many killings of black unarmed citizens by police and far too few cops ultimately held to account. And it's not just the use of deadly force. It's about humiliating stops for no apparent reason. It's about drawing guns on six-year-olds. It's about a lack of basic humanity in some, again, not all, but some police officers. Some of these cops feel empowered to treat black and other people of color differently. Witness the January 6th Capitol riot, where there's some credible evidence that some officers actually took selfies with the insurrectionists. It may be true, it may not be true. It may be true that active duty police officers are working with the Oath Keepers. It may just be blowing smoke. One thing is for sure. To watch a six-year-old child scream for his mother while a cop stands over that child with a drawn gun is not blowing smoke. That was real. And as it turns out, Unnecessary. This happened a while back, but it's something worth noting because the mother, the woman who was driving the car, is now suing the police officers that did this to her. And it turned out it was all unnecessary. The Aurora, Colorado cops involved thought the car the child's mother was driving was stolen. Turns out it was not. That was true. That was extremely painful to watch. When we come back, we continue to look at policing with someone who's been there. This is The Intersection. You're listening to The Intersection of Politics and Culture with Mark Riley. 
What's happening in your world? Is there an issue you'd like me to talk about? Hit me up with a comment on Facebook. Welcome back to The Intersection. Clayton Moore was the first ever black police officer in the Ohio city of Astoria back in 1986. He has an extraordinary story to tell, which he does in his book, Good Cop, Black Cop, Guilty Until Proven Innocent. I had a chance to have a conversation with him about his career, the Chauvin verdict, and much, much more. My guest, and it's a pleasure to have him here, is Mr. Clayton Moore. He's a retired police officer from Forstoria, Ohio, which I understand is what, about 40 miles south of Toledo and 90 miles north of Columbus? Is that about right? Yes, sir. That's a, that sounds accurate. Yes. Okay. And he's also the author of a book, Good Cop, Black Cop, Guilty Until Proven Innocent. Very provocative title, but let me ask you from the very beginning, Clayton Moore, what made you decide to become a police officer? Okay. Um, I didn't decide <laughs> to become a police officer. <laughs> In all actuality, um, the first chapter of my book kind of indicates uh, how this all happened. Um, graduated from University of Toledo with my degree in communications. Um, I was married, had a child, jobless, and my mother decided to, you know, come over and she's asking me, and I, you know, she had that look on her face, and I looked at her like, yes. <laughs> she goes, well, you know, the the city is hiring a uh, police officers right now, you want to take, why don't you take the test? My words to her was, mommy, I ain't trying to be no cop, <laughs> you know? <laughs> so needless to say, that is the first chapter of my book, <laughs> okay? I got you. I got so you. so it was kind of a job out of necessity. I got you, no, believe me, I understand totally. Now, uh -huh. this was in 1986, you were the first black police officer in Fastoria, Ohio. How were you received? Well, I was pretty much received okay by the public. You gotta understand, um, I was pretty much um, an, an athlete growing up here. So, you know, we had a lot of success while I was playing. People knew who I was. Um, my father ran the taxi company in Fostoria, so they knew him. And so people knew who I was. So I was received okay until I got on the job. <laughs> when I first walked in the, the police department, after I got hired, my first day on the job, I'll never forget this, you know. Um, I had people come to me earlier prior to me working and saying, hey, watch out for this guy, watch out for this guy, you know. Well, it was just ironic that one of those guys that I was supposed to watch out for, his response was when I walked in there and everybody's pretty much you know, meeting me, introducing themselves, and it was pretty cordial, okay? This guy, the first thing he said to me was, hey, stay out of the dispatcher room, um, go in the squad room. It's kind of crowded in here. Not a hello, not a, you know, welcome aboard. It was okay. And ironically, he was a sergeant as well. <laughs> oh, okay. So you had to kind of listen to what he said. Yeah, yeah. And that was his greeting to me. <laughs> Let me ask you, because you've had wide experience as a police officer, and we're going to get into uh, a little bit further down the road, what happened in 2008 when they fired you and then was, were 
uh, ended up rehiring you. But I want to ask you a, a kind of experience question. Do you believe that there is a culture of policing in America? I mean, I know your experience is in Fostoria, but mm -hmm. I, I'm just wondering if you believe that there is a particular culture among the police. I have friends who are police officers in New York City, and some of them say, yes, there is a particular culture. What do you say? Uh, I would agree with them unequivocally. There, There is a culture, um, and it's also, um, you know, they call it, you can call it blue blood culture, you know, and they're going to take care of their own. They look after their own. And this is something that's just, again, has just been there for a long time and has carried on. Now, when I say that, I'm not saying that the, the people involved are bad people. That's not what I'm saying at all. Because okay. um, majority, a vast, large majority of the police officers in this United States are good people, very good people. You don't hear about them, Mark. You don't hear about them. No, you hear about the ones that aren't good people. And they're the ones who kind of give us the reputation that we have in law enforcement. Now, uh, does that include in, in the culture of policing, uh, you said sticking with each other, but does that mean, uh, I won't say lying about incidents, uh, but perhaps if there is a collective view of an incident, do most of those officers subscribe to that view? As long as it doesn't put them on the chopping block. <laughs> okay. Yeah. You know, nobody wants to lose a pension, that's for sure. Nobody wants to go to the chopping block. But if they can basically help out their partner, you know, in forever means they can, uh, yeah, that, that happens. But I'll also say this. It doesn't necessarily include the minority officers. Because really? there's a there's a difference between minority officers and Caucasian officers. What is the difference? Well, and I think you're going to get different things on different departments, obviously. Now, my experience, because you got to remember, I'm the only black police officer in my department. Okay. So I was kind of like, ironically, I say the Long Ranger. Okay. Yeah. Uh, some more irony to that is that's who I was named after. His original name, his real name was Clayton Moore, Clayton the Lone Moore, Ranger. Clayton Moore, sure. Yeah, so. I grew up watching the Lone Ranger. <laughs> okay, so there's a lot of irony right there, okay? Yeah. But, um, you know, you, you just don't feel like you're part of their group. Yeah, we're part of a fraternity because that's what we do. But we're not, um, how do I want to say, so much, I don't say welcome, but if you go, I had an experience one time when I was being stopped. My wife was with me. I wasn't in uniform, I was traveling actually to my son's game, okay? Um, I was stopped in the state and the way he treated me, the way he approached me, um, it angered me, but it angered my wife, who's Caucasian, a lot more, really? okay? and it was even to the point where I can see where things become confrontational just because of the disrespect and the talking down to somebody and to basically, you know, 
him talking to me like basically like I was trash. Do you think that was because it was an interracial couple or was it just talking trash to you? I think it was talking trash to me. Really? You know? Um, and then when he found out I was a police officer, when I told him that um, he asked me for my ID and I said, well, my ID is in my glove box. He goes, I can get it out. I said, I have a, my off-duty weapon in my glove box. I let him know that ahead of time, you know? Mm -hmm. So I didn't reach out to use a gun, okay? Yeah. And he goes, you know, and then when I pulled out my ID and my badge was there right there, he goes, so your police officer said, yes, I am, you know? He goes, oh, are you part-time? Oh, <laughs> are you part-time? Seriously? Are you part-time? Yes. Wow. And uh, I was a sergeant, so I've had like 25 plus years on at the time, you know, and it was, so was you know, and she was really angry. I'm calling her down and say, hey, it's just a ticket. It's a speeding ticket. It's okay. I'm guilty like anybody else. If he wants to give it to me, fine. I said, that's all it is, sweet. But she was irate. Did he you know. apologize to you for the way he spoke to you once he realized you were a police officer? Not at all. Not at all. Not at all. And had I probably stayed a little longer, I probably would have been arrested. What did you think of the verdict in the Derek Chauvin case? It was appropriate, accurate, and much needed. <laughs> you know, um, anything less would have been a travesty. Um, and don't get me wrong. Let me say this. We still haven't got justice. All right. What we got is the beginning of justice. And there's a big difference. Okay. We got the beginning of justice because now he still has to be sentenced. Okay. And we're going to find out how the system really treats people. We're going to find out right now. Yeah. He's you facing know. 40 years. Am I right? Well, he is. However, that's up to the judge's discretion. Yeah. The judge does not have to give him the max. And in the state of Minnesota, people usually non or first offenders serve two thirds of their sentence. So what if he gives him 12 years? He serves two thirds of that. Look at when he's out. And you're going to tell me that's justice. There were at least two, maybe three police officers who were with Derek Chauvin at the time that George Floyd died. I believe they, the three, it's either two or three, are due to go on trial in August. What do you think their responsibility is, um, given the circumstances that we saw on Darnella Frazier's videotape of Derek Chauvin uh, having his knee on George Floyd's neck. What is their responsibility as police officers? Okay, that, that's a good question, Mark. That's a very good question. Um, I think people should first understand that I think some of these officers were training officers. They were just started. They were new. Um, you had a senior officer there who was in charge of seeing, which was the defendant and ex-police officer Chauvin, okay? So pretty much when you have the senior officer in there, he kind of controls everything and takes charge. They were doing everything in their power not to be insubordinate to that all, okay? However, at the same time, you know, they're, they're facing the crowd and they all had different, you could say, responsibilities at that point mm -hmm. once they secured Mr. Floyd. Um, and so it was hard, I would say, for some to really maybe assess him in that regards, 
because they didn't want to be, so I say, insubordinate to the senior officer. However, it still comes to the point when you have a duty of care and you're looking at the officer to make sure he's okay and say, hey, he is no longer a threat. Hey, can we put him in a different position? Can we do something else? You know, what about getting him away from the scene? If they were so much worried about the crowd, okay, then guess what? Remove yourself from the crowd. Mm -hmm. Very important point. Now, after 22 years on the job, from 1986 until 2008, uh, at that point, you were fired from your job. What were the circumstances and what happened where they uh, reinstated you? Okay, the circumstances were I had actually 18 charges against me, okay, and violations. Uh, two of them, they felt that they were just so egregious that they couldn't prove, so it went down to 16. And as the paper said, I still see the headlines like it was yesterday, Mark. Not so sweet, 16 charges against, you know, Sergeant Moore. And so that was, um, that was pretty, and that was deep with me. And for a long time, and I tell people, I couldn't say the word fired. I couldn't say that. I, I, I was let go. I was terminated. I was released. I could not say I was fired. You know, it hurt that bad. Understandable. Um, you know, um, there were bogus charges that were uh, thrown against me. Now, I was president of our union, police union, mm -hmm. okay? Um, we have, there's an opening of the chief's position. Well, we have within our contract and our rules that we hire from within. We promote from within, okay? Sure. They want to go outside our department to bring somebody in. We fought this. And it went up to the Supreme Court even, okay? It was appeal after appeal after appeal. Even the Supreme Court uh, heard it and basically said the city was allowed to bring somebody in. When that happened, they brought their man in and everybody that was on those papers that, you know, represented the city and I represent policemen. So myself being president and the vice president, the president and vice president of the command union, okay? So there's four of us, our names were there because we were representing our union. The city went after all four of us. Well, it got to the other three, uh, made life hell for them. Some of them, you know, end up resigning. Well, I was the last of the Mohegans. And when they found out, you know, I wasn't going away like that, all of a sudden it was one thing after another. And that's when the charges came up. Oh, okay. They built a case on you. So they thought. <laughs> well, they did have to reinstate you. I'm wondering, uh, because your situation it's not exactly the same, but it's very similar to uh, to a woman named Cariel Horn in Buffalo, uh, mm -hmm. who got fired, I think it was in 2006, when she intervened in one of her colleagues uh, having a suspect in a chokehold. Mm -hmm. And they fired her, and it took her until last month, I think, for a judge to reinstate her with back pay and her pension, et cetera. She mm -hmm. fought really, really hard and she was out of work for like 15 years. Did That's you crazy. ever, yeah, it's crazy. Did That's you crazy. ever feel like you were never gonna get this job back again? I never felt like that, okay? But I just thank God for my parents, all right? And how they raised me, our spiritual foundation we have. And I was, I'm grounded. I'm just grounded in the faith, my faith. Mm -hmm. And I will say this, 
there's three times, and I mentioned it in the book, Mark, that I just broke down in tears and I just cried, I said, God, why are you doing this to me? Why am I going through this? Within 30 seconds of every time I asked him that, I kid you not, within 30 seconds, I had an answer. Something happened. Something happened. There's three things that happened, and I point them out. You know, if anybody knows anything about the Bible, there's certain numbers that are very significant in the Bible. Three is one of them. Okay, three is a very significant number in the Bible. All right. John there's three sixteen. Well, you want to hear something funny? I was married on three sixteen. <laughs> Yes, and I, we chose that date specifically, 316. Yes. yes. Okay. okay. Yes. Right. I hear you. <laughs> <laughs> but um, after the third time, I just had so much peace because I realized, okay, God, you got this. And I just knew it wasn't about me. He was just using me as a vessel. So I was fine after that. Um, let me ask you about Black Lives Matter. What do you yes, think of them? Do you think they've done good or are they, as some people even in Congress say, uh, some kind of a racist Marxist organization? What do you think? No, they're an organization that basically is just letting the world know our lives matter, black lives matter. Now, I was asked this before and what people have gotten a different view of them if they would have said black lives matter too as in also, because that's all they're saying. They're not saying white lives don't matter. They're not saying brown lives don't matter. They're saying, wait, you guys are killing our people. Our lives matter too. They just never said two as an also. They said black lives matter, okay? Because that was the focus and emphasis of what was going on, okay? But they did not, they never came out and said anything about other lives don't matter. But again, you, when you got somebody doing something like that, you also have the other side always trying to point out and try to put a spin on it. And that's what they did. They just try to put a spin on it. Understandable. Now, let me ask you this. Um, if there was one thing that you could change about American police, you are Clayton Moore, America's police chief. What would you change about policing to make it more fair and to remove the perception among black people that the odds are stacked against us? Well, to be honest, there's a whole lot than just one thing <laughs> you have to do. <laughs> I mean, if we want to be fair about it, gotcha. um, I, I would say probably the biggest thing, though, Mark, is um, I use an acronym. It's called COPE, C-O-P-E. And obviously, you can't have COPE without COP, C-O-P. Mm. And what it stands for is communication. Okay, you got to have communication throughout the community. You got to have an objective. What's your objective? Okay. What do you want to get through? What do you want to solve? You have to have a plan. Okay. And then the E, you have to execute it. Let's put all it in executed. However, there's a key here because see, this has been tried and done before. And why hasn't it worked? This is what I think the key is, is that you cannot have 60, 70, 80 year old white men making decisions and choices and laws that affect 18, 19, 20-year-old black men. It don't work. So what can we do to change? Now, go back to your question. We empower members of the community. 
to take part in coming up with in communication. You're going to sit down with you. We're going to take part in coming up with those objectives. You're going to take part in coming up with a plan. And you know what? You're going to help us execute it. You're going to help us bridge this gap. So now the community knows that, guess what? Things are going on. It's because you played a role in that. You took part in that. And we're listening to you. We're not listening to you. We're following what you want done. That's how you can start begin to be, build trust and say, hey, you know what? They do believe our lives matter. They're involving us. They're empowering us. And anything short of that is not going to work. Do you support defunding the police? Wow. Throw some good ones at me, aren't you? <laughs> <laughs> yes, but I think some people don't understand exactly what that means. Okay. It does not mean take away all the resources or the money police farmers get. No. What it means is just reappropriate where the money goes for. Okay. A good answer. Like, uh, when I retired in 18, we knew what, two things that the police were going to start dealing with two things a lot more than they have been. One was the elderly because people are living longer. Two was mental illness. Okay. And as you can see, we got a lot of mental illness and crisis going on. Okay. So now reappropriate uh, defunding the police. No, no. Let's take some of those funds, train those officers better and CIT training, crisis, in, okay, and let's get people maybe on our staff that can deal with uh, incidents that don't necessarily acquire police intervention, but maybe mental advisors intervention, you know, so take those, all those monies that we're paying out in lawsuits every year, we could be training people, we can be equipping officers with better equipment, okay, to help things, better um, training, uh, cultural diversity training for the officers. Okay. So they're not scared. A lot of officers are scared of a confrontation with a man of color. Armed or unarmed? Oh, no, it doesn't matter. Hmm. They're scared. They're frightened because of what I call the boogeyman, um, approach or, you know, what they've been heard, what they've been told, what they see and everything. They're afraid that, okay, I stopped this black man. Oh, you know, things may happen. So they're so quick to go right from deadly force to not just listening, assessing the situation. You know, um, I think there are some things in the George Floyd case that they just missed. They just totally missed because they didn't listen to him. Certainly didn't. Final quick question. Mm -hmm. You were known during your time in the Fostoria Police Department as officer friendly. Did anybody <laughs> take your place after you retired in 18? Is there now still in Fostoria an officer friendly? Officer friendly was given to me because uh, the work I did every summer with our four and five year old. We ran a thing called Safety Town. And what it was was four and five year old was a two week session where we teach them how to cross the street, right? You know, where the traffic lights met, train safety, uh, stranger danger, and a whole gambit of things, two-week program. And yes, I was labeled officer friendly. And even when kids come up and graduate, they still see me. They they uh, call me, hey, friendly, how you doing? <laughs> so, I said, how you doing? And uh, actually, I just ran into a lady about maybe a week ago. And she goes, 
Oh, Clayton, I remember you. You have my daughter in your safety town class, you know. Oh, wow. That's so, fantastic. I get that. Um, today, um, well, COVID the last year or two has hit us, so I don't think they had the safety town program. But even after that, um, I've been told uh, it's different, <laughs> you know, okay. which I, I give, which I smile about. And I like, you know, I wanted to go on, but I guess that's a compliment to me. Clayton Moore, thank you so much for being with us. This has been a real pleasure talking to you. Hey, thank you, Mark. I appreciate it. And God bless. Thanks again for listening to this episode of The Intersection. The executive producer of the broadcast is Ms. Kim Jack Riley. Music is by Eric Lund. Until we meet again, please stay well.